Looking for a break from the never-ending news cycle? Searching for fresh, new content that makes you stop and say, that's how they did that? Then look no further than Teamistry, the new original podcast from Atlassian. Hosted by filmmaker and documentarian Gabriella Cowperthwaite, Teamistry looks past the front-page headlines and into the untold stories of teams behind some of history's most groundbreaking moments. Download Teamistry for free at Atlassian.com slash Teamistry or wherever you listen to podcasts. Interested in healthcare? Well, here's a programme you might not want to miss. Hosted by longtime healthcare reporter Dan Gorenstein, Tradeoffs takes a close look at the costly, complicated and counterintuitive world of the US healthcare system and the policies that govern it. Tradeoffs digs into the weeds with experts who understand the data driving the policy trends while telling compelling stories of those impacted by those policies. In the words of the Tradeoffs team, there are no easy solutions for a troubled healthcare system, just Tradeoffs. You can find Tradeoffs wherever you listen to your podcasts. I have you loud and clear. <laughs> Hello. 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 Welcome. Welcome. <laughs> <laughs> Science. And that is to say, physics, medicine, nature, or space, time, the brain, life, the universe. This week, it's our monthly science Q&A phone-in show, and that means it's your chance to get involved. You send in the science questions, and we put them to our panel. Some corkers we've already got in for this week. Why does the kettle get quieter just before it boils? Why do cat's eyes have slit-shaped pupils? And how much water is there in the average rain cloud? The Naked Scientist podcast is powered by UKfast.co.uk. Let's meet the team. We have zoologist Max Gray. He studies fish and he'll be answering our questions on animal antics. Caroline Steele is a physicist and she's going to be popping some corks for us later on. Sounds exciting. And Max is celebrating too. It's champagne. Max has actually just got his PhD, but that's not why we're popping the corks. Also, Judith Croston is a starry-eyed space scientist. She knows about galaxies and black holes. And also, Heidi Solberg-Uchland is a brain scientist with a special interest in sleep and speech. I'm Chris Smith. I'm a medical doctor. Now we've met the team, we better dive straight in with this question for you, Max. As a cat lover, I've wondered at the beauty of their eyes, and in particular, why are their pupils split vertically rather than horizontally? And for that matter, why are split at all and not circular? And that came in from Peter Lake and his lovely cat, Tim Tam. So what do you think, Max? Uh, So this is all to do with the fact that Cats are very uh, active at night and so need good night vision as well as having day vision as well. So they're, they're kind of not fully nocturnal, not fully diurnal. They don't, you know, they're active at both times of day. So they've got very, very sensitive eyes so they can see at night. But as a result, during the day, they can get very oversensitive. So they need to be able to control the amount of light that gets into their eyes really, really precisely, much more precisely than we do. And so ha- by having a vertical slit as a pupil, they can narrow that down to, to a vertical slit and that, that controls the light reasonably well, but they may need more control than that. And then so ha- by having a vertical slit, they can then use their eyelids to close that slit further down to a point. So they kind of have two two ways of controlling the amount of light getting into oh, their genius. eye. Genius. What about animals like cows and horses which do they not have the slit certainly rabbits have the slit running front to back not up and down don't they often it's not perfectly front to back it's kind of at a slight angle and it will kind of their eyes will move around as they move their heads so it's all to do with how uh, because they're prey animals they're they're 
more need their vision what's to be better. On the horizon. Yeah, and when they're when they're down eating, it, it helps see around them when they're when they're vulnerable. And I suppose if you're a predating animal like a, a cat, then you're going to be fixating on something and pouncing. So you need to have very good depth perception, and having a very small pupil is is going to give you that, isn't it? Yeah, well, it's, it, that's mostly why you have eyes on on predators are at the front, like with ours and looking forwards, because that's that's how you hunt. And whereas animals like rabbits and, and sheep will have their eyes on the side of their head, so they can have a better field of vision for things that might pounce on them. And we have a round one because that's the best compromise between yeah, it's also day and night. Kind of easiest as well. And it, interestingly, there are if you look at cat species that are active during the day, lions are a good example. They don't have slit pupils; they have round. And you can go away and Google this. If you look, Google lion's eyes, you look and they have, they have round pupils like humans. Max, thank you very much. Now, Caroline, you're up. You're not off the hook. We've had this question in from Sam. Can you tell the difference between hot water and cold water by listening and why? Now, just a bit of background, because this does sound rather odd, like we've all gone mad. But actually, the idea here is that you could tell the difference between hot water and cold water by the sound when you pour them. Now, I'll ask Caroline about the science behind this in a minute, but let's give you at home a go and also everyone here in the studio an opportunity to try this. So what I have got here is I have got two empty glasses. So here's one, the other. I've also got two filled glasses and one of them has cold water and the other has hot water. And I'm going to pour one of the glasses at a time into one of the empty glasses and I want you to listen to the sound and we'll see if we can pick up a difference. I'm just going to move the microphone. Hang on because for obvious reasons I don't want to demolish the studio. Right, here we go. So this is sample number one. Are we ready? Here we go. Okay, keep that in mind. Okay, here is sample number two. Right. Did we notice? Judith, you're a, you're a physicist, aren't you? Did you notice any difference? I have to say I don't think I did. I'm not sure if I was supposed to, but I don't think I did. <laughs> Caroline? I think the first one made a slightly higher pitched noise. So therefore, would you think that was the hot one or the cold one? I would think that was the hot one, would be my guess. Do you concur with that, uh, Heidi? What do you think? I heard you study well. speech and language. So you have <laughs> yeah, I could, I could hear the pitch was slightly higher on the first one. Right, OK. You are right. The first Yay. one was the hot one. But now tell us, why should that be the case? This is because hot water is slightly less viscous than cold water, so it's a bit more runny. And that's because molecules of water that have boiled and are hotter than the cold water move around faster. Um, so they, sm- they form slightly smaller droplets. So when you pour hot water, these slightly smaller droplets, as they splash against the container or against the water that's already in the container, they make a slightly higher pitched noise. So if you were to say pour custard, you'd expect it to kind of sound a bit lower and it makes bigger droplets, which make a kind of more low sound. But obviously the difference between hot and cold water is fairly small so I'm, I'm really surprised that we managed to to hear that one especially <laughs> I, I as there are so many factors Max, Max what about the difference between hot and cold custard Ooh, well I, I imagine hot custard is hot, well, no, actually we know that don't we hot custard is more runny than cold custard so it would make a slightly higher pitched sound high pitch noise. now talking of, of, of sounds of water Caroline there's a sort of a follow up your, mm-hmm. your second for two points uh, <laughs> is this one this is from Alan why does a tea kettle make an increasingly louder sound as it approaches the boiling point and then start to quiet down as it boils? We've all heard it. Why do you think it is? So in a kettle, you have a heating element at the bottom and that heats up really quickly to actually above 100 degrees. So the first thing to heat up in a kettle is the water around the heating element. 
So this hot water around the heating element forms tiny little bubbles, which then rise up through the kettle. But as these bubbles rise, they rise into an area of colder water. So the bubbles cool down and condense and kind of implode. And the sort of bubble slaps against itself, making a really loud noise. But as a kettle heats up throughout, so all the water inside the kettle is one temperature, as these bubbles form and rise through the water, they don't reach an area of colder water. So they actually make it all the way to the surface and then they pop on the surface. But this popping sound on the surface is a lot more gentle and quiet than the sound of the bubbles kind of imploding on themselves within the kettle. So if you sort of watch your kettle boil as it's making a loud sound and coming up to boil, you'll see lots of tiny little bubbles in the main body of the water, but you won't see them reach the surface. And then once the kettle has reached boiling point and these bubbles make it to the surface, you'll see them sort of expand and pop. But that popping noise is actually quieter than the imploding bubbles in the main body of the water. So there you have it. Now you know why your kettle makes the noise that it does. Thank you very much, Caroline. Now, Heidi, I know you're very interested in sleep. Here's a question that's come in from Helen. She wants to know, why are we so creative in our dreams and why can't we be this creative when we're awake? Sleeping and dreaming is not something that we understand very well. Um, But we do know a little bit about what's going on in the brain while we sleep. And that might give us a hint to why we might be a bit more creative in our dreams. Um, so there are different stages of sleep and we, all, we dream in all these different stages. But the dreaming that she's thinking about is probably the one that happens during REM sleep. So the rapid eye movement sleep that happens at the end of each cycle. So we go through stage one, two, three and four into deeper and deeper sleep. Uh, and during this stage, we know that the hippocampus, so the bits of the brain that's to do with memory sort of re- replace uh, the memories that we're, we've been making throughout the day, basically just reactivates the different parts of the cortex that was involved when we experiencing something during the day. So let's say that we were picking blackberries from this bush that we found, so then it's kind of playing that back so that we remember where that bush was and so we can find those delicious blackberries again. But in the REM sleep, what happens is kind of the hippocampus goes out of the picture. And then we start to try and integrate this memory into the other memories that we already have. So then you kind of get more sort of different parts of the brain going off. And then if you then wake up during this time, then probably you'll be remembering these kind of strange connections between sort of things that aren't really, they don't really seem to be that related. But then your brain may try and kind of integrate that and make a story out of it so that's kind of why dreams might you know be a bit weird and the question that she's asking is why can't we be this creative in waking life or can we well maybe we can i mean maybe if we kind of so one thing that we also know about rem sleep is that um, the frontal part of your brain, which is kind of to do with the more sensible, you know, you choose to do something and not something else. So you kind of direct your attention to something specific. So this is kind of your controller in, in a way in your brain. We know that this kind of shuts down a bit during REM sleep. So this also kind of allows you to sort of just freely associate or just random concepts that aren't normally connected or you wouldn't normally associate. Um, suddenly they can sort of start to connect so if you could do that while you're awake then maybe you could also become a bit more creative i'll bear that in mind and (laughs) hopefully hopefully we're going to see enormous creativity on the naked scientists future thank you Heidi. (laughs) now judith here's a question we got sent in that's quite literally out of this world hello people at naked scientists i'm omka from india i'm a biochemist but i'm also interested in space exploration and space biology 
My question is, if aliens are watching us from millions of light years away with their advanced telescope or any other devices, won't they be looking at Earth in its early form, filled with prehistoric leavings like dinosaurs? What do you think, Judith? Well, the answer to that is yes. Uh, so the questioner is right. If we think about aliens that were, um, say, living in the Andromeda galaxy, so the Andromeda galaxy is our nearest galaxy and it is um, a few million light years away. And so what that means is that any signal that those aliens could measure, it would have to travel at the speed of light to get there. And so it would have taken some number of millions of, of years to get there. So what they would be seeing would be prehistoric creatures wandering around on the Earth. Doesn't that presuppose that the light hasn't spread out so far? that uh, they wouldn't be able to see a dinosaur. There are a couple of pro- there are there are a couple of problems with that. One of them is that obviously the sorts of telescopes we have are nothing like good enough to be able to see um, prehistoric creatures on planets in uh, the Andromeda galaxy. Uh, so that's one problem. Uh, and so when we think about trying to hunt for aliens we we tr- we try to think about the sorts of radio signals we think about technological societies. So the Earth has only had been sending out signals that are likely to be detectable for for sort of 100 years. But there's so um so that's one thing. Um, and that's if we think about aliens in a different galaxy. But I think what perhaps the questioner has missed, or at least or, or at least isn't in the question, is, the, is whether the aliens would have to be millions of light years away. Because in fact, we know of plenty of planets that are a lot closer than that. So there are actually, I think, about 75 known planets within 50 light years. So if there were aliens on one of those planets, then maybe they would be listening into things that we signals we were sending out 50 light years away. They might be listening to the Beatles on, on the BBC or something. But um, but yeah, so we don't... Well, they've got um, reasonable taste then. We don't really know. <laughs> yeah. This, this light travel time thing is a really important thing to take into account if you're trying to figure out what we can see from alien civilizations and what they might be watching. So in summary, the light is spreading out, it's spreading out at the speed of light, and in theory they could pick up that light, they could interpret what that light came from, and they would effectively be seeing prehistoric Earth if they were that far away. But they may be much closer, and they may even be watching neighbours. Yeah, absolutely. Judith, thank you very much. She made biologists think differently because we showed that cells can be changed. So I may be the father of Dolly, but I think I'm the grandfather of IPS cells. Hello, Dolly. In this month's Naked Genetics, we're commemorating 20 years since the birth of Dolly the sheep, the first mammal cloned from an adult cell, and the transformative technologies that followed. Plus, our gene of the month is keeping a straight face. Listen and download now at nakedscientist.com genetics. You're listening to The Naked Scientists with me, Chris Smith. And this week, we're answering your science questions. So if you'd like to pose one for the next Q&A, do send them in now. It's chris at thenakedscientist.com. Max, we heard from Mark, who wanted to know why do moths come out at night time and not during the day? A lot of moths do come out at night time, but not all moths do. There are plenty of moths that are active during the day. So if you've ever had clothes moths in your in your wardrobes or eating through your jumpers, they're often active during the day. You'll see them flying around the house and they'll get into your carpets and eat So they're as not well. exclusively so active. So they're not, no. And by and large, a lot of moths are nocturnal and a lot of butterflies are diurnal active during the day. But you get overlap. There are night butterflies and there are day moths. And just in case Mark is picky about the answer... And he's saying, why are they coming out in the day and night? How do they know it's day and night? And what makes them do that behaviour? Well, it, it's dark at night, is yeah, essentially yeah, how but, but biologically, <laughs> how do they know it's day and night and to do the behaviour they do? Why do they decide, I'm going to go out at night, not during the day? There'll be, there'll be some mechanism in, the, in their brain that gets activated when their eyes are receiving less light and they'll be you know, less active when there's lots of light. 
Do we know why they like the light? Why do they fly around a candle and singe their wings? Do we know? uh, Yeah, that's to do with how how insects navigate um, at night. So if you imagine starlight and moonlight, because it's coming from a source that's very far away, to all intents and purposes, the, the rays of light can be considered parallel. So all light is coming from the same direction. And so a moth wanting to fly in a certain direction will just fly... A set angle, it'll decide a direction and set flight. I'm going to fly that way and keep the light coming from the left or the right or wherever they choose to. But if you're if you've got a point source of light, like a, a candle or a light bulb hanging from hanging from the roof, if you imagine using the same means of navigation, you keep the light bulb to your left. You'll just slowly spiral in uh, and eventually and the hit the light. Happens. And it's not just moths. So yeah, anybody who's sat on a porch with a with a candle or a or a lantern. Pretty much all night insects will do that. And it's a good job they do that because in the butcher's shop you can have that nice purple light that then makes sure that you don't get uh, nasty flies coming after after your food. Thank you, Max. This is a quick question from our listener, Martin. Hi. During a recent bout of gallbladder pain, I got to wondering how the body can associate the pain with an internal organ to exactly where that organ is, whereas normally I'm not aware of any sensation within the body. Hi, Martin. Well, the answer is that the way your body develops when you're an embryo, it starts off as a flat sheet of cells and then another flat sheet of cells forms underneath that. And then the whole thing rolls up rather like a tube. So you get a tube inside a tube. If you imagine two plastic plates laying on top of each other and then the edges curving round to meet in the front, the inner tube is your gut tube and the outer tube is your skin. And along that length, the body divides itself up into segments a bit like a millipede, and those segments are running different genetic instructions and they also have different spinal nerves coming out of the central nervous system that's developing that supply them. So your body has a pattern and the inputs from those nerves therefore signal where on the body surface and to a lesser extent where on the body insides a signal is coming from. So the body can localise pain reasonably well. It's much better at doing it on the outside surface of the body, A, because there are more nerves there, and B, because it's more helpful to you to be able to, for instance, put your hand in your pocket, feel around and find a two-pence coin, than being able to do that level of precision with your innards. But it is useful to know when things are upset inside, because obviously if you're uncomfortable or if you have stomach ache or something like that, knowing where the pain is, it can give you help as to how to make it better. So you do have the ability to do that, but you you don't do it with the same level of precision. And a good example of this is when people classically have a heart attack or angina, chest pain because of cardiac pain, they don't just feel the pain where their heart is. They may feel the pain in their neck. They may complain of pain down their left arm. Or if they're one of the rare individuals in the population who have their heart on the opposite side of the body, they may actually complain of pain going down their right-hand side. Caroline. So I understand that we sort of we need to feel where pain's com- where pain is coming from inside us and that helps. But why can't we feel sort of any pressure at all? Because when we digest food, we don't feel that at all. And it's a bit of pressure. When your tummy rumbles and when you get oh, nervous okay. and when you have butterflies in your stomach, mm-hmm. that that sinking feeling, a bit like before you come on this program, is <laughs> is because your fight or flight response, your sympathetic nervous system kicks in and it suppresses the parasympathetic nervous system, which is your part of your nervous system that makes you rest and digest and it strongly deactivates your intestines and that shuts down your stomach and shuts down your guts and all the muscles relax and that sinking feeling is everything going as it turns off 
in order to prepare you to run off. So you do have a degree of sensation, but your brain is also very good at subtracting from the signals being presented to your consciousness everything which you have got used to, which is why you put your clothes on this morning, you're probably aware of pulling your jumper over your head, but then pretty quickly you stop noticing, I'm wearing a jumper. But if you bring it to mind, suddenly you'll start noticing it again. And you think, ah, because your brain is mentally subtracting in order to prevent information overload. Right, Caroline, Staffan Lincoln uh, is planning a birthday party in space, I think. If you pop a balloon in space, what would happen to the gas? Would the vacuum cause it to expand at an ever-increasing rate? So, firstly, unfortunately, you couldn't pop a balloon in space because as soon as you got the balloon into space, it would split. And that's because, as a questioner said, there's sort of... Uh, there's more gas inside the balloon and there's less gas outs- outside of the balloon in the vacuum of space. So the balloon would expand as the gas inside it would sort of want to move towards the area of no gas. So if you could sort of video it and play it in, su- in slow-mo, you'd see the balloon expand and then probably split down one side. Unfortunately, you wouldn't even be able to hear this sort of pop as there's no molecules to take the sound to your ears, so you wouldn't hear it. And then once the balloon had split, the molecules from inside the balloon would just sort of they would travel off into the vastness of space, never to be seen again. Well, that was short and sweet. A bit <laughs> like the lifetime of the balloon. Thank you, Caroline. OK, here is one for you, Judith. It's from Paul. Is it possible there is a new heavy element inside a neutron star? OK, so, um, yes, yeah, so the answer to this is no, but it's sort of quite interesting why. Um, so I should start perhaps by um, briefly explaining what a neutron star is. So just, just as a reminder, neutron stars are these really strange stars. So you take a sort of an ordinary star, so you could say take all of the matter in, the, in our solar system and squash it down to an incredibly high density. So you could fit our solar system inside the M25, basically. So, so neutron stars are about 10 kilometres or so in size, but they're, they have all the matter in them that an entire solar system could like have. Like one teaspoonful weighs, you know, millions of tonnes. Yeah, a teaspoonful could weigh the same as Mount Everest or something. So they're very strange. The physics of them is really weird. Um, they have very strong gravity, but... Um, uh, but the, the the important thing is that the density and the pressure in the centre of a neutron star is so incredibly high. We just can't, we don't understand how physics works in those conditions. We can't do experiments in the lab. So um, there are quite a lot of exotic theories about what could happen in the centre of a neutron star. But one thing that couldn't happen is the creation of a, a, a new chemical element, sort of similar to the sorts of things we have on the periodic table. Because sort of chemical elements have, they have protons and neutrons bound together and then they have orbits of, of electrons spinning around. Uh, and what happens in a neutron star is that as the, when the star forms, the protons and the electrons that were there and the nuclei from the star, they all, they, they combine together. So the electrons and the protons combine together to make neutrons. So there's, there, there's no space to have these orbitals of electrons um, spinning around. So you couldn't make a, a new element like that. Um, on the other hand, there are theories about all sorts of weird things that could go on in the centres of neutron stars because the neutrons themselves might break down into quarks, which are the little particles that, that you get inside neutrons and protons. And then those quarks can do quite strange things and combine together uh, in various ways. So people are quite interested in trying to figure out the physics of neutron stars because it might tell us something interesting about those sorts of exotic states. Judith, thank you very much. Right, talking of weird stuff going on, this is one for you, Heidi. Hi, Naked Scientists. This is Alicia from Mexico City. My question is, what makes car drivers being so rude? Any science to the rescue? Science to the rescue behind nasty drivers on the road. What do you think? <laughs> so there are kind of maybe three main reasons why people get angry more often when they're driving. Um, one is that 
If you imagine driving somewhere, you're on your way to some sort of appointment, you have a goal, you're going somewhere. Um, so you anything that's going to come in your way is going to be kind of obstructing you to getting to that goal where you want to be. So just that is something that will start to annoy people. People are really, really quite nasty on certain circumstances. But then in real life, I use that phrase to mean when they're not behind the wheel, they're really nice people. So why do they go sort of Jekyll and Hyde like that? There are, there are two reasons, maybe. One is that comparing driving a car to walking on, the, on, a, on, a, on a pavement, for instance, and there's lots of people. So in, when you're just walking around and someone is kind of cutting off, you, you don't really start shouting at those people because then that means you actually have to face them. Especially if they're bigger than you. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Whereas when you're in a car, you sort of, well, so you don't really see them. So that's one thing. Or you might see them, but you, they might just be passing by and you, you don't, you can sort of shout at them, but you don't get any conversation. You're shouty. You're shouty. Do, you, do you shout at people behind the wheel? <laughs> I don't tend to do so, but I have a good friend who tends to do it. <laughs> you shouty person, do you not, not as much as my husband did. So, so you know, you don't, um, you don't really sort of get any chance to get any reaction from anyone. So you can sort of just go on and be really angry at them. Oh, so it's like a self-fulfilling prophecy because there's nothing there to abate your excitement. You just keep getting more and more riled about it because they yeah. can't even explain that they weren't really trying to wind you up. It just sort of accidentally happened. E- exactly. And the other thing is that, you know, you sort of get a bit more anonymous i guess in it it's a bit like you know commenting on 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 the web or yeah, like social you know, media trolling social media, and, yeah. yeah so it's kind of maybe something along the same lines yeah thank you heidi right max one for you hi naked scientists rich thornley from moscow here my question is what very very tiny easy changes can we all make in our lives that will add up and overall lead us to having a reduced environmental impact so there's a whole whole bunch of things you could do. I mean, making sure you've turned your lights off, don't leave the fridge door open too long when you're looking in the fridge, you know, um, spend less time in the shower. There's lots of things will make a tiny difference. But the the small things that won't necessarily change your life that much that could make the biggest difference is what you choose to eat. Um, and so the amount of meat you eat has probably on a you know individual basis per person the biggest con- single contribution to how much environmental impact you as a as a person have so and i'm not, i'm not saying everybody needs to go vegetarian or indeed needs to needs to give up meat but it just eating less meat loads of people eat meat for two meals a day particularly and will have meat during lunch and during dinner if you just why is meat so bad max it's because of the amount of energy that is required to produce meat compared to producing vegetables, for example. The you know, energy initially comes from the sun and gets absorbed by plants through photosynthesis. They create um, proteins and, and sugars, and that's where you get the, the food from. It's, the efficiency is um, better going from sunlight to plants than if it has to go from sunlight to plants and then be fed to an animal. Like the pro- energy isn't transferred 100% efficiently and so it takes a lot more energy to get to a plant and it's factored into the amount of water that is required to keep cattle, the amount of energy that goes to growing the crops to feed them and produce cattle feed and that's before you even count the amount of methane that cows burp into the Yeah, but atmosphere. not all meats are equivalently bad, are they? Because I, I think no. beef is the worst Beef culprit. is far and away the worst, uh, followed by lamb, followed by pork. Um, so what's best? What can I eat with chicken, less? Chicken is roughly, roughly on a par with hard cheese. So cheese... It, it tastes better, though. Well, I don't know. I'd pick cheese over chicken most days, myself. You prefer cheese? 
who doesn't? Well, I, I like the lactose intolerant, I suppose. They get a pass. Max, thank you very much. <laughs> Speaking of chicken, uh, I had a friend who used to feed all of his leftover curry to his chickens. And he says, very good way of recycling things. Unfortunately, one of the chickens got really sick and took it to the vet. And the vet said, no, it's gone into a coma. Sorry, Max. Uh, right. <laughs> I had to say something. You're listening to The Naked Scientist with Chris Smith and a, a panel of pundits. We have Max Gray, Caroline Steele, Judith Croston and Heidi solberg Auckland with us. They are collectively zoologists, physicists, black hole specialists slash space scientists and neuroscientists. But right now we've dispatched physicist Caroline out into the car park and she has with her a large bottle of wine. It's in fact fizzy wine, isn't it, or champagne, and Georgia Mills is standing there. Hello, Georgia. Hi, Chris. Why are you outside? We're going to do a bit of an experiment with some, some cheap supermarket brand champagne. OK, well, here is the question that came in for you. Hi there, it's Paul James here calling from Kuala Lumpur. In my more reckless years, I had a party piece, which was to shake a bottle of expensive champagne violently for a period of time and then open it. So long as I open the bottle at about 45 degrees, there will be no bubbles coming out whatsoever. What's actually going on here? OK, Georgia and Caroline. Right, we're going to try and recreate this now. So are you ready to shake? Yep, I'm ready. Mind my, my right. car. Let's go. OK, right, so I'm shaking it. And now I'm going to try pull the cork off <laughs> at 45 degrees. Oh, no. OK, I'm going to shake a bit more. It's just <laughs> it's the now, awkward moment when you can't... It's not off. quite F1, I'm is it? Again. <laughs> It's come. Here we go. Here we go. It's slowly edging. Oh, Whey. and and yeah, there was a lot of fun. <laughs> I mean, <laughs> we're filming this and we'll put the video up later. But actually, not that much came out. We've still got a bit, but it did it did fizzle all, all over the place. So, should this have worked? Yes, it sh- so it should have worked um, because I tilted it at forty five degrees. I increased the surface area of the liquid inside the bottle, so there should have been enough space for the sort of foam to form and not fizz out. But I think what I did wrong was I didn't quite get it at 45 degrees because I was trying so hard to pull it off that I didn't allow for there to be a large enough surface area for the foam to form. So it kind of, yeah, it spilled out. So I'll try again another time. But um, I'm afraid now. we've only got the one bottle for now. <laughs> for now, yeah, I need some practice. Well, thank you for trying anyway. And do not drink what's in there because we promised at least a celebratory sip for Max. Now, here is a question, Heidi, for you from Lucille in Cambridge. What are the advantages and disadvantages to being raised bilingually? So, Lucille, I think there are lots of advantages to being raised bilingually. I'm a bilingual myself. I was born and raised in Norway, but I learned English in school and now I'm a Norwegian English bilingual. So... But imagine if I was born in England and I had a, um, an English dad, say, then I would be able to talk to my family members. If I knew Norwegian, I would be able to visit Norway, to talk to people, to engage with that culture. I would be able to work there. You know, I couldn't really do my work now if I, if I didn't know English. I couldn't be doing science. These are things that are kind of a bit more common sense. But if we think about what the disadvantages and advantages is in terms of the brain... For you, Chris, you're, you're a monolingual English speaker. Yeah. So if you think about a thing that you usually put on bread, uh, it's usually made of fruit or berries and sugar, what, what would you call that? Jam. Jam, exactly. So you just have like one word for that thing. So in your brain, when you think about that concept, if you want to say what that concept is, then you say jam and that's it. That's easy. For me... If I think about this thing, I have to choose between two different words. So I could either say jam or I could say sultate, which is the Norwegian equivalent of that. So we know that actually when I'm speaking English, 
my Norwegian is kind of still running in the background. So this creates some kind of a, an, um, a conflict. Like a conflict, yeah. I mean, is there a latency effect? As in, if I record how quickly I get the word for jam and how quickly you get the word for jam, if, if you, the more languages you learn, if you've got to pick through more, does it take longer for your brain to sort through and say, right, I, I need the English one? I would think yes, but I'd have to go and look that up. But I, I do think that's that's the case. And also what happens is, well, this is something I notice a lot of the time is I, I find it more difficult sometimes to think of the words. I have the word at the tip of my tongue, but I can't access it. What um, language do you dream in? Since I live in Cambridge now and I've, I'm speaking English all the time, I probably dream a bit in English as and well. And with what accent? <laughs> I, no, it's funny because this person wrote to us and said uh, he, he downloaded from America, he downloaded the entire... Um, back catalogue of the Naked Scientist. And we've got something like a thousand episodes of the programme now. And he said he, he sort of did the equivalent, the podcast equivalent of a binge. I sort of <laughs> was doing many episodes per day. And right. he said, I knew I'd overdone it when I began to dream with an English accent. <laughs> so I just wondered yeah. if... Uh, well, think, <laughs> given that I'm, I'm mostly using the British accent when I'm speaking in English, I probably would dream in a British accent. Jolly good. Yeah, <laughs> jolly good. Heidi, we're going to have to move on because we have to ask Max a question because right. this one's come in. Anthony is wondering if you can answer this one for us, please, Max. Um, he saw a sedge warbler singing recently and it didn't seem to take in lots of air to produce its song. It just kept singing for well over a minute without taking any breaths. So how do songbirds breathe to produce these very long periods of song? Okay, this is really interesting, actually, and there's a couple of couple of things that birds have or, or do that allows them to do this. First of all, the respiratory anatomy, the lungs and what allows birds to breathe, is very different from, from mammals and from our own. And rather than having a, a chest full of lung that expands when they breathe, they have a, a lung that doesn't really expand and contract very much, but they have, coming off from that lung, there are nine air sacs which then fill up and have muscular development around them that allows them to be uh, pushed in basically like bellows so they'll then force air through these different air sacs uh, to breathe and what that allows them to do is to kind of kind of have loads of little different pockets of air that they can push uh, out when they're singing which allows them to sing for a long time but that doesn't why, like, why that wouldn't give that them though, a Max? minute why do birds have lungs which work because our lungs obviously work quite well we've evolved over millions of years to have them working that way why have birds gone down a different route and have their lungs working differently um, the thing is so they can breathe easily while they're flying because the flight muscles of a bird are right across their chest that's why chicken breasts are, are what we eat they're, they're massive muscles well, in the chest don't of a bird fly, do they well no, they used to yeah. ancestrally some something in a chicken's uh, history used to fly they'll flap a bit they'll give it a go and that's how roosters get up onto the top of barns for well, example is true. so the, the air sacs are all there so that basically so that birds can breathe while while they're flying and they don't just drop out of the air uh, struggling for breath but in addition to that birds will also do something they make um, what are called mini breaths um, so, which lasts for about 30 milliseconds it's about a 30th of a second they'll take these tiny 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 little breaths which uh, adjust enough air put back into their system in the middle of a song that allows them to continue singing and you wouldn't necessarily hear that unless you recorded it and slowed it down a lot and it's just the tiny tiny little mini breaths that allow them to to keep going when i was in australia um a few weeks ago, I was in Perth and I was at a conference and the traditional opening of the conference, you always have someone who does a welcome to country from the local ind indigenous peoples. And these guys are really very good at circular breathing on their didgeridoo because this chap played this amazing sequence and I did not see him pause or appear to take breath once. I mean, obviously he did because he didn't pass out, but that, that's the human equivalent, I would presume. 
yeah, similar. It's almost like you, you fill up your cheeks as as if they were the sort of, yeah, roughly like the air sacs in birds. It's very similar. Now, Judith, Clayton has a question for you. He's been pondering about the universe. And um, he says this. Watching the water drain away down the plug hole got me thinking. At the centre of every spiral galaxy, there is a massive black hole or a star of huge mass. In turn, if all the galaxies rotate around a certain point in space, could there also be a black hole or giant star there? Okay, yes. So um, the questioner is is right. There is a black hole in the centre of our galaxy. And um, and black holes are these these very strange places in space where uh, essentially no no light and no no matter nothing nothing can escape um, an awful lot of matter has been squashed down a bit like the neutron stars I was talking about before but even worse everything gets squashed down really really far so so there is a lot of gravity to do with a black hole but what's um what's interesting really is that black holes are only weird if you get really close to them. So um, once you're a little bit further away from the black hole, they just behave like any other star that had the same the same amount of mass. So actually, um, although um, so in our galaxy we have stars spiralling around, we have this, these sort of beautiful spiral arms, but it's not the black hole at the centre that's actually controlling that. It's actually the gravity from everything else in the galaxy. So the reason why the stars are, are, are the thing that the stars are orbiting around is not really the black hole. It's all the stuff in the galaxy. Uh, and there's actually much more stuff in the stars and even more stuff um, in the dark matter. So it's actually 95% of the mass in a galaxy is this strange invisible dark matter. And that's actually what controls everything moving around. So going to the bigger picture, he was talking about could there be a really monster black hole in all the galaxies? All the galaxies were spiralling around some really monster black hole. Well, firstly, um, the biggest black holes we know about are about a billion suns and that's still a lot less matter than in one single galaxy so when you think about how much gravitational pull that will have even the biggest black holes we know about couldn't really make an entire galaxy move around so again when you think about what's happening and the way that galaxies are moving in the universe which is something we can actually measure quite a lot we can do lots of different observations in fact again it's actually the dark matter that's out there that's really controlling everything it's not the black holes um it's pretty impossible to imagine a black hole that would be big enough to um to be able to control the movement of uh, whole galaxies thank you judith It's The Naked Scientist with me, Chris Smith. It's a Q&A show today and we're joined by a panel of luminaries including Max Gray, Caroline Steele, Judith Croston and Heidi Solberg-Uckland. If you'd like to send in a question for one of these Q&A shows, the email address is chris at thenakedscientist.com. Right, this question has just come in and it's from Elizabeth. Hello, Naked Scientists. We're on a road trip to the coast and the sun is just coming up. We remember the saying that it's always cold just before the dawn. Darks as well, but that does make sense. Is it true that it suddenly gets colder just before dawn? Keep on making your amazing show. Love from Elizabeth and Nick in South Africa. Well, thanks, Elizabeth. And Nick, the check's in the post. Uh, Well, what do we think? Does everyone here agree that uh, the temperature appears to dip before or around the time of dawn? Max? It seems to be, I'm not sure if it dips particularly, but it feels like it slowly gets colder over the course of the night and then as a result it's colder. So Max is disagreeing, he's saying it's it's colder as the sun comes. Do you you agree, Caroline? I I think I'd agree with Max in that it it seems that once the sun set, the temperature seems to decrease consistently and then the sun rises, would be my guess. Judith? 
I, yeah, I don't think it, it's sort of. I don't think there's a particular dip just before the dawn. Not so there is a saying, the dawn dip, mm. and and it's based on reasonable principles in physics because the argument goes that as you speculate, Max, where does the energy on the Earth come from and the temperature? It comes from the sun's radiation warming the Earth. When has the Earth been not having any heat coming in for the longest? By definition, that must be just before dawn because that's when it's been dark for longest. Therefore, it's going to be coolest then. But there is this observation that certainly under certain circumstances, it can get colder just ahead of the sun coming up and as the sun rises. Now, why should this be? Well, the argument put forward is that although you are still in darkness, there's a patch of the Earth's surface quite close to you that's now being illuminated and irradiated. So temperatures there are going to start changing reasonably fast. And because the sun's heat is warming the Earth's surface, this is in turn warming the air above the Earth's surface. This is in turn creating a pressure difference around the Earth's surface. That pressure difference is going to drive winds. And this is going to draw colder air in to replace the warm rising air, which is going to include pulling air in from where you are. So somewhere colder could pull its air in over you and make you even colder than you were to start with. So the argument goes that... It does get a little bit colder, paradoxically, just as the sun rises, because you get these air movements, which include movements of cooler air, which will chill you out a little bit. So there you go. I hope that answers your question, Elizabeth. Now, what about this one for you, Caroline? Hi. I was wondering, is black really a colour, or is it just the absence of light, visible light? That comes in from Martin. Black is just the absence of light, really. It sort of seems to be a colour to us because we can differentiate it from other colours. But a black object is actually an object that that absorbs all colours of the visible spectrum. So that's all frequencies of light. So say this black microphone absorbs red, blue, green, all of the colours. So to us, it just looks like the absence of colour, which is black. So when we shut our eyes, we see black as no light's getting in. The opposite of this would be white. A white object reflects all light. And when we can see all frequencies of visible light, they combine to make sort of a white colour, although colour would be slightly misleading word. We had Pulikel Ajayan on the programme about 2008, I think it was, and he published this paper that said the new black and said he'd made the blackest substance ever made. And he sent me a picture of it and uh, actually had this disc of this stuff and the industry standard of what we call black. And his stuff was 30 times, he says, blacker than black. It seems paradoxical that something could be blacker than black, but it really was dramatically darker. And their technique was exactly as you say, Caroline, the reason something has a colour is because it's reflecting light off its surface. His approach was they said, well, if we want to stop light being reflected from a surface, how do we do it? They made a layer of carbon and then had this bamboo-like forest of carbon nanotubes sticking up like bristles off of the surface and their rationale was any photons of light that go in there will ricochet around and just get lost in these carbon nanotubes and never come out it just basically turns the light into heat in the surface and that's why it's so black but no amazing uh, discovery let's have a look at uh, this one which is for you judith luke has said i was wondering if anyone has found a black hole which has captured another interstellar object, I'm assuming that the creation of a black hole is so violent that anything that was originally in that solar system was blown away or consumed by the star prior to the formation of the black hole. You better begin by actually telling us how a black hole gets started in the first place. Yeah, okay, yeah, so there are yeah, there are two bits um, two bits to the question. And so um, if we think about how black holes can actually form, that sort of answers the second question about whether it would destroy, destroy the solar system. So the best way we know of making a black hole is in what's known as a supernova explosion, which is when a really big star 
basically um, collapses and then then has a really big explosion. And for two reasons, if you had a solar system at that point, so if there were planets around that star, they would they would get blown away, they would get destroyed. Um, and uh, and that's partly because a lot of matter gets goes so there's less there's actually less gravity and and that means that the planets can just go wandering off into into space, but but also there are shock waves and all sorts of horrible things happening. So it's very unlikely that there'd be a way for planets to survive um, when a black hole forms. So if we see if we found a planet, for example, around a around a black hole, that would probably mean it had somehow had to get there afterwards, either either by forming around the black hole or by being captured, which is what the what the questioner is asking. So we haven't actually found any black holes that have planets orbiting around them, sadly. Uh, interestingly, there are some neutron stars that have planets around them, which which is kind of cool. But um, there are black holes that we think have probably captured other stars. So there are places where, uh, where there are probably a lot of stars very close together in the galaxy. And we think that the chances of them banging into each other are such that, that it's quite likely maybe. Um, but the, there's a star um, orbiting around a black hole that's actually been captured because they're really close together. Um, and actually, those are some of the, the best ways we have of detecting the black holes in the first place is when those stars actually start, uh, when, when the black hole pulls stuff off the star and it falls in onto the black hole. So how how could a star be near a black hole and not sort of get sucked in by its immense gravity? How how can a star orbit a black hole? It must surely arrive at huge speed or what happens? Yeah, so whether or not a star will get captured or will fall into the black hole, as you say, it will depend on where it's coming from and how fast how fast it's going. Now, to actually get sucked into the black hole, it has to get incredibly close because, as I think I said a bit earlier, actually, if you're far away from a black hole, it just behaves like a star. The gravity just obeys the normal normal laws. If you actually want to get sucked into the black hole, you have to get pretty close and black holes are quite small. So the chances of that happening are actually pretty rare. It's much more likely that it'll just get captured in an orbit and, and, and go around it. And in fact, we can see some stars orbiting the black hole in the centre of our galaxy. And we can just watch them travelling around uh, in these quite fast um, orbits and, 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 and see that they are actually orbiting around the black hole, which is kind of cool. Judith, thank you very much. Now, Max, uh, David Williams has been in touch with a question for you. He says, does the caterpillar and its butterfly and its egg all have the same DNA formulation? Yes, yes, they do. Um, Any single individual of of any species is going to have the same DNA throughout its entire lifespan. What changes in butterflies is, particularly between a a caterpillar and an adult butterfly, is they go through metamorphosis. And during this process... There's a hormone in, which is uh, found in most insects as they as they change from a larva into an adult, which is called ecdysone, and it's the, that that hormone triggers metamorphosis and it changes how uh, DNA expression works. So the the all of the cells within the caterpillar will start to produce different proteins, and slowly that will cause a, a mass physiological change because the the DNA uh, is being expressed differently. It's it's creating different proteins, and that and all of the cells will change. And what triggers that, what starts the process of of the hormone being released, is often an environmental factor. Uh, and in a lot of caterpillars, as as you might know from from everybody's favourite textbook, the hungry hungry caterpillar, uh, it's it'll it'll happen when uh, when they're well fed. They'll eat and eat and eat until they have enough food to be butterflies which are basically just there to breed the butterflies tend to live very short periods of time and most of a most of a butterfly's lifespan is a caterpillar and so the bottom line is that the dna remains constant but under environmental and hormonal influences you change which genes are turned on to what extent and where and that's what drives the metamorphosis and also drives the behavior 
Yeah, absolutely. And that's true in all manner of insects. It's not just caterpillars and butterflies. Thank you, Max. Now, Judith, Keith Jones has been in touch with this question. I realise that the universe is expanding and expanding at an accelerating rate. I was just wondering if it is expanding evenly in all directions. Right, yes. So that's actually a very good question. Um, So we've known that the universe is expanding for quite a long time, um, going back to the 1920s and the first the first sort of measurements of how far away it was Hubble, wasn't uh, it? galaxies we were discovered yeah, that. Um, by Hubble. So that we've known about for a long time. And then the idea that that expansion is actually getting even faster, so the universe is accelerating, that comes from observations that were done in the late uh, 1990s. So um, the best evidence for this comes from observations of really distant supernova explosions. So we talked a bit about supernova before. Um, actually, this is a slightly different type of supernova, but I won't go into the, the details. But um, these um, supernova can be used um, as sort of as sort of cosmic rulers and map out the the, the shape of, of space. Uh, and the further back you go, the, the more distant supernova you can find, the better the better you can measure how fast um, the acceler- the expansion is going. Uh, and in the late 1990s, it was realised that this expansion was getting faster. So the question is, is it accelerating evenly uh, in all directions? And this gets to a really fundamental idea in cosmology because it's a really very basic assumption of pretty much all cosmological theories that the universe is the same in all directions, what, what physicists call it, it's isotropic. Um, it, it's a sort of basic point of cosmology. So if that turns out not to be true, that causes a lot of problems for our understanding of the universe. And when you say the same in all directions, you're, what, you're, what you're referring to is if it's the same in all directions, therefore it must be expanding the same in yeah, all directions. Yes, exactly. If it turned out that it was accelerating more in one one direction than another, that would that would mean that cosmology is pretty complicated and, and we'd have to go back and... I mean, people have theories about... Because people have theories about everything, there are theories about um, uneven acceleration. But, but anyway, uh, so, so to get to the point, um, people have actually looked for this... The basic assumption is that you would expect it would be even in all directions. In fact, people have looked at these observations of distant supernova and they've sort of mapped them out in different directions to see whether or not the acceleration is actually the same in all directions. And sort of luckily, if you want astronomy or cosmology to be simple, um, there's no evidence at all that it's different in different directions. It seems to be the same. Maybe that's disappointing if you want the universe to be to be stranger and weirder than, than, than it already is. I don't know. Thank you, Judith. It's nice to know that cosmology can occasionally be straightforward and simple. Now, Caroline, Mark Harnett has been in touch and he says, when wind turbines create electricity, they're extracting energy from the air. So how much does the wind slow down after passing through the turbine? So can you put an efficiency number on the turbine in the same way as you can on, for instance, a solar panel? So the short answer is yes, you can. So when uh, the wind turns a blade of a wind turbine, it does, in fact, lose speed because of the sheer effort it takes to turn those blades. Now, this isn't something we really need to worry about. Um, I know some there's been some speculation that this could change the climate and this could be have vastly terrible implications. But realistically, with the number of wind turbines we have at the moment, that, that decrease in wind speed is actually completely negligibly unimportantly small unless you're in a wind farm in which case you don't want to put wind turbines downwind of wind turbines but anyway we can work out an efficiency for them by looking at how much energy they get out of the wind so how much does the wind slow down um, versus how much energy they can output and it actually turns out that wind turbines are relatively inefficient because there's a lot of friction between the blades and the kind of rotor in the middle um, so they sort of have an efficiency of it, it changes hugely, but about 40% would be an okay guess. Um, 
so yeah, in comparison to other energy formats, wind turbines are fairly inefficient. But luckily we've got a lot of wind, so it doesn't really matter. But a solar panel is only, what, 20 25 percent efficient yeah so solar panels are fairly inefficient as well so yeah that's that's something we have to sort of live with when we're using natural forces to power things really thank you caroline Uh, heidi here's a question for you from jordan who is wondering why do some people get motion sickness but some people don't first of all tell us what motion sickness actually is why does this happen so when i'm uh, sitting in a car there are multiple different receptors in my body and different different systems that are telling my brain about where my body is in space and what it's doing, how it's moving. So I've got receptors in my bum saying I'm sitting still and I've got pressure from my uh, skin saying that I'm sitting still. And then at the same time, um, my vestibular system inside of the inner ear where there are these canals with fluid in them that kind of slosh about and tell my brain where I am in space and keep me help me to keep my balance uh, and then there's also my eyes telling me uh, whether or not stuff is coming towards me or moving from me which will tell me about whether or not I'm moving so in a car you start to get mismatching signals from all these different systems so the vestibular system is saying we're moving because the car is accelerating or decelerating and at the same time my eyes and my the rest of my body is telling me that I'm sitting still um, so this creates a sort of um, mismatch and the brain doesn't really know how to interpret so it. So logically the brain says, ah, the right thing to do is to throw up. <laughs> yeah. So why, why, does, why do we get nauseous? So this is something we don't actually know why. There is a theory that was posed in the 70s, which was that maybe this is to do... So normally when we had this sort of uh, mismatch going on, this would be because we've, we'd um, eaten some kind of a toxic food or something that meant that we need to throw it up in order to get rid of it so this is the brain's best guess essentially about what's going on and that's why maybe it's making us nauseous although this has not been sort of proven it's just a theory that we have but uh, returning to jordan's question which is why do some people seem to succumb more than others and also are older people more susceptible than younger people because i've noticed i was immune to the worst that the fairground could throw at me when i was the age of my children but as i've got older i've become more susceptible really okay interesting so i've read the opposite that sometimes older people will get less susceptible to but they just don't go on the fairground so much that's what it is (laughs) so individual differences can come from maybe that people have different levels of sensitivity in their vestibular system so some people will be maybe relying more on their vestibular system than others uh, to keep their balance or to to uh, know where their body is in space so this might if you're very sensitive then maybe you're also more prone um, to motion sickness Um, but also this has to do with exposure and telling essentially your brain needs to know that you're okay so if you train yourself to tell the body that actually this is fine we're not in any danger we're not being poisoned then over time you get used to it and then that stops this nausea from happening so they go i prescribe 15 circuits on the waltzer followed by that horrible <laughs> roller coaster that flips you upside down 500 times and finally this week a wonderful question. Hello, Naked Scientists. My name is Isabella, and my question is, why do clouds defy gravity? Why don't they just fall to the ground like other objects? And we understand that she's eight, so fantastic to have you on the programme, Isabella, and to have such a bright mind. Now, the reason, Isabella, that clouds stay up where they are is 
because there are strong winds pushing the clouds upwards. What do I mean by that? Well, clouds are full of water. And in fact, if we weighed a cloud that was about one kilometre by one kilometre by one kilometre, because scientists have measured how much water there is in a cloud, it would weigh about 500 tonnes. But the water isn't in one giant blob. It's in lots of tiny particles and ice crystals, which are called hydrometeors. And these have a very big surface area compared to their size. And because the Earth is constantly being heated up by the sun shining on the Earth's surface and warming the surface, the surface warms the air above the surface and the warm air rises because it expands and becomes less dense. So there's a column of warm rising air which is pushing upwards and this hits these tiny water particles which are trying to fall down under their own weight and it keeps them up there. And that's why clouds have a flat bottom, because that's the point at which the tiny water particles inside, which are trying to fall downwards, meet the warm air coming upwards, and the two balance each other out, and they form the cloud base. So that's why clouds stay up there, and also why 500 tonnes of water in one cloud doesn't come crashing straight down to the earth. Good thing, really, isn't it? Now, on that note, it's time to end the programme. We have run out of time, so thank you very much to everyone who sent in their questions. Do keep them coming. There'll be another Q&A show next month. In the meantime, thank you very much to our guests, Max Gray, Caroline Steele, Judith Croston and Heidi solberg Auckland. The producer was Georgia Mills. Do join us next time when we're going to be unpicking the latest breakthroughs in Alzheimer's disease. The Naked Scientist comes to you from Cambridge University and is supported by the SCFC, the EPSRC and Rolls-Royce. Thank you for listening and until next time, bye-bye.